Hey, my name is Sarah. I'm the CEO of Startup Parent. One of the things that we do here is we help tired parents make friends. When you're in the thick of it, honestly, community has made all the difference. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that the Wise Women's Council is coming back. We are back this fall and we are now accepting enrollments. One person said, it made me feel seen and less alone. What I didn't expect was just how expansive Wise Women's Council was for me. The people I met, what I learned both about myself and the world, it truly expanded what I thought was possible about working parenthood. Another person said, the Wise Women's Council brings these incredible women together and you form relationships that approximate the closeness of many years long friendships. Another woman said, there is no way to describe what it feels like to be validated. So much of being a woman and more so a mom makes one feel invisible. In this space, I felt seen and heard by really smart, funny, and fearless parents. If you are looking to join a supportive, expansive, brilliant group of women founders, leaders, business owners, and creatives, then check out the Wise Women's Council. Over the last five years, we built a leadership incubator for women navigating both business and parenting. It's a network of powerful, smart, and kind parents that have your back. If you've wanted to apply to join us, our next cohort starts this October. To apply to join us, head to startupparent.com slash WWC. Or if you go to our website at startupparent.com, just look for the button that says Wise Women's Council. You need to apply by mid-October to join our next cohort. I really hope I get to see you there. Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. We are coming up on the fifth year of having this podcast in production. And over the last few years, I have gotten to interview some of the most incredible people. We have gone deep into thinking about things like fertility, the myth of the perfect mother, what it really takes to have equal partnership, and why equal partnership is not yet a reality for the majority of people. We talk about things in parenting that most people don't talk about, and we get to talk about fun things like rage and postpartum depression and finding daycare and why pregnancy advice is so paternalistic. Super fun conversations, but really, I love having these conversations. Today, we are going to dig into some really fun pregnancy myths and facts and look at how much worry we've created and what you should and shouldn't do and all the rules there are around how you should behave. We're going to address things like caffeine consumption. Is it okay to have a cup of coffee? and alcohol. We're also going to take a look at why decisions like this are hard to make and why the data is confusing and why even if you give the same information, the same exact information, put it in front of two different people, those two different people might make very different decisions. And that's okay. Emily Oster is someone I have wanted on the show since I started this show. Emily is a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of the book, Expecting Better why the conventional pregnancy wisdom is wrong, and what you really need to know. She received her BA and PhD from Harvard in 2002 and 2006. Her research is pretty wide-ranging, and she looks at developmental economics, health economics, research design, and experimental methodology. But she's probably most well-known among non-economists for the way that she writes and produces in the mainstream media. She's written for the Wall Street Journal, Slate, the best-selling Super Freakonomics book, Nate Silver's 538.com, and she's been featured in a TED Talk. Emily, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, I have wanted you on the show for a long time. I want to ask you my favorite question. What time did you wake up this morning and what was the first thing you did? Five o'clock. And the first thing I did was uh, drink a cup of coffee and make snack for my kid for camp. Oh, what was the snack? Grapes. Grapes. Yeah, because we're recording this during summertime. And do you have multiple kids or one kid? I have two kids. I have a daughter who is seven and a son who is three, but he goes to a camp where they provide the snack. So I only have to make one <laughs> snack. <laughs> what's summertime like compared to school? Like how much time are they in camp and what's that like as a parent? 
the kids are in camp in the mornings and then not in the afternoons. So it's a little bit more relaxed for them and a little bit less relaxed for me, I would say, in terms of childcare. But they seem happy. I think that they like the routine of kind of doing something in the morning and then getting to like chill out and, you know, go play in the pool outside in the afternoons. How does that intersect with your life as a researcher and the way that you design the work that you do? Like what kind of adjustments do you have to make to your schedule? So at the moment, not too much because we have a full-time nanny. So much of my job is research that the summer isn't that much different than the year in principle because I'm doing some teaching during the year. I actually also do some teaching in the summer, but I don't do a huge amount of teaching in either time. And so although the summer is a little quieter, it's really just mostly research most of the time. So when the kids are off more, I've been trying to spend a little more time with them. But I would say my days look pretty similar in the two time periods. Although I will say that I had told you I might be a few minutes late for this because our nanny is having some car problems. And so I'm now like shuttling my kid back and forth to sewing camp. Now that I think about it, maybe there's a little more kid time in the summer than <laughs> I was reflecting on. <laughs> yeah. There's all those little micro adjustments or just the nuances of scheduling multiple humans. I find it so fascinating when I interview people. And it's Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. And I have yet to convey, maybe you have a great way of doing this, but I've yet to convey to some of my non parent friends like what it's like, like why it is such a thing. Yeah. I think part of it for me is that it's always in your head. I think for me, that's been the biggest change, the most disruptive thing work-wise is just that a lot of the time I am also trying to think about some aspect of parenting. So, you know, I'm trying to write something, but then at the same time, I'm like in my head, I'm like, oh, I got to remember that, you know, we need to get a new tennis racket because they said that that one was too small or, you know, oh, I got to remember that like, Finn's hat is dirty and I've got to wash it tonight. So there's all these stuff in my head that's like kind of on the sides and it makes it harder to really, really focus when I need to. Mm -hmm. So you've written this book. It's called Expecting Better. And it's all about debunking the myths around pregnancy and figuring out how to cut through the noise as a data person and an economist. And for people listening, my husband and I fought over this book while I was first pregnant. We ended up ordering a second copy of the book so that we could each have our own copy. <laughs> you and should recommend all, for all people, your household definitely needs two copies of my book. <laughs> two. Because my husband was so nervous, but he wanted to do everything right. And he also really wanted the science behind it. So he kept reading it and then giving me advice and recommendations. I was like, you are too earnest, but it's really sweet. <laughs> but I want to go back and ask you first, if you can kind of time travel and take us back, what compelled you to start this book? And can you tell us about your forays into pregnancy and parenting? Yeah, sure. So I first thought about having a kid, what must now be, you know, eight or nine years ago, because my oldest is like seven and a half. Amazingly, I am not like a super relaxed person. That'll probably come across, certainly comes across in the book. And so, you know, we decided we were going to get pregnant. And I think like a lot of people in my group, I was like, okay, like we've decided we're going to do this. We thought about it. And now like, okay, let's get on the program and do it. And I think sort of the first thing was like, oh, actually, it doesn't always work like the first moment that you think you're going to do it. And so I sort of immediately, even before I got pregnant, there was sort of like, oh, okay, well, you said that my period would come back after I went off birth control, but like it didn't come back right away. And like, what does that mean? And you said it would come back in three months and it's been like three months and two days. And so like, what should I learn from that? You know, to be fair, I think my reaction was a little extreme. It was also very hard to get answers to questions where you were really looking for like a numerical answer, you know, like how long should I expect it to take to get pregnant? You know, the answer that's like, oh, well, if it's more than a year, you know, then we'll start doing something that's sort of different than the question of like, okay, but what should I expect? And so even then, even before I was pregnant, I was sort of looking into like, okay, how should I think about doing this? And is there some data I can collect that would help me get pregnant? And then when I got pregnant, a lot of those things were still true. So I was still interested in data and understanding the evidence behind a lot of things people were saying. But on top of that, I found myself quite frustrated with a lot of the answers that I was getting. 
around questions that I thought were like really, really important. So like the first place this came up for us was a question of what kind of prenatal testing to do. So at the time I was pregnant with my daughter, the choices were a pretty invasive procedure called CVS, where they go in through the vagina and cut a little piece of the placenta and then like test it or a procedure where they do an ultrasound to measure some things about the baby's skull, which is informative, but not as informative. So it has some false positives and some false negatives, meaning sometimes they say everything's fine and it's not. And sometimes they say things are not fine and and they are. And so, you know, this felt to me like a really, really important decision. So thinking about, you know, the risk of chromosomal problems of a child with Down syndrome, you know, these are the kinds of things that we really wanted to think carefully about the risks and about, you know, what we would do and about getting the right kind of information. And, you know, when I brought this up with my OB, she was like, you know, you're only 31. So we're going to recommend this thing. That seems like a crazy reason to recommend it because there's a lot of differences across 31 year olds. And so it can't possibly be that the only thing involved in this decision is whether I am 31 or not. But, you know, there was sort of no effort to kind of discuss like, what are the things that should go into this decision? And in addition, I had to make the decision in like one day. So it was like I had a meeting with my doctor and then it was, she was like, okay, well, if you want to do something different, you have to decide tomorrow. It's like, if you don't decide tomorrow, then like too late to do this other thing. And so it felt like, oh my God, I'm totally unprepared for this conversation. I don't even really know what these things are. I haven't learned anything about them. Like, ah, yeah. And so I found that experience you know, frustrating and kind of terrifying. I feel like thinking back on it, I'm remembering this sort of like standing outside some building in Chicago, like on the phone with my husband being like, we have to decide about this tomorrow. I don't know what to do. I started doing a lot of research on that. And I just started doing a lot of research on a lot of other things, some of which were also very important to me, like things about sort of birth experience, and some of which are more like, can I have a cup of coffee? Is it okay to have a glass of wine? And eventually, I just decided I'm going to write some of this stuff up. I wish I could think about like why I thought that was a good idea. What made me think that that would be fun? <laughs> yeah. um, I just started writing and I wrote kind of an introduction. And then I wrote a bunch of stuff about alcohol and caffeine and tobacco. Not that I smoke, but it seemed like it fit in the space. And I thought, oh, you know, this is pretty good. Like, you know, maybe some other people would be interested in this. And then I sort of sent it to this agent who I had some vague contact with. And she was like, oh, this is great. Okay, I'm sending it out. And then I was like, oh, okay. And then, <laughs> and, and then like, she was like, okay, you can talk to these editors. I was like, oh, okay. And then we talked in there. She's like, okay, great. These guys have bought it. Like it's, you know, it's due in a year. So I was like 36 weeks pregnant or something. And like, so it's sort of like, oh, okay, I guess I, now I'm going to write this book. But I mean, it turned out to be great. And I'm glad that I did it. But that part was sort of, I didn't perhaps think about it as, as much as, as one might have. But that's you know, I so think, interesting. Yeah, that's sort of where it all came from. Did you know that you wanted to write a book? Has book writing been a thing on your agenda? Or was it really something that kind of, oh, here it goes? I did some of this before the book, sort of writing for a popular audience. So rather than just writing for academics, I've sort of, I like the idea of trying to help people understand why economics and data is useful in making decisions about your life. So I think that part of it, I knew that I liked doing. I think before I got pregnant, it had never occurred to me to write like a whole book or you write this kind of book. That really came up like sort of with the experience of being pregnant. I want to dive into your background as an economist and how you think about decision making and just understanding data as well. Because I think before we get into the actual research that you tackle in the book, because I think one of the things that's so helpful, especially for women listening, is this experience of going to interact with the, I'll call it the medical establishment, and feeling like doctors are telling you basically non-information. It's mm -hmm. a little bit patronizing. It's, oh, don't do that. No one does that. Or everyone does this. Or most women do that. Or most women do this. The kind of loss of control that is the emotional experience is saying like, wait, but what is most people? Is most people 51% of women this happens to? Or is it 99%? Because those are very different things. And I might make a different choice based on that information. This is a really broad question. So I can maybe ask it better. But I would love to know about like... How you think about decision making and why your background as an economist has shaped your thinking about information that we get? So I think there's sort of two pieces to the way I think the economics shapes how I think about these problems. So I think one piece is almost the economic theory side, where we think a lot about just weighing benefits and costs. 
which seems sort of pedantic and silly, but I think people don't think as much about this as they should in these decisions. So, you know, when we think about, should I do this or should I not do this? Okay, how large are the benefits to doing it? But then how large are the costs? And, you know, in particular, in a lot of things about pregnancy, we really don't ever think about the cost to mom or the idea that like you might like to do something or the fact that people have different preferences, which is like a really big part of decision making. So, you know, two people can see the same exact data, can understand it exactly the same way and could still decide to do something different. And that those could both be the right decisions. So, you know, in the context of pregnancy, something like an epidural, like it is often the case that two different people can see exactly the same data on the, you know, risks and benefits of pain relief and labor and can make a different choice about what they want to do. And it isn't like one of those is wrong. And the way we understand those different choices is that people's preferences differ. And that comes up all the time. It is something which is ignored by the sort of most people do this, most people don't do that. I mean, even if it was 99% of people, what if you are not like those people? You know, what if you have a really, really different approach to something, then that seems like that's something you should consider. And in fact, you know, although it may be useful to tell me how often people do it, it's more useful to tell me how I should think about whether it's right for me. So that's kind of one piece. The other side is really the kind of way that economists approach data and just approach evidence. So trying to think about, is there any actual data on this? Is there any good evidence on the relationship between two variables, a behavior and an outcome, say? So, you know, a lot of what my academic work is, is about trying to figure out, you know, does some treatment affect some outcome? And can we be confident that that's a real effect and not driven by other differences across people? And that problem that, you know, people behave differently on some dimension, but they're also different in other ways, that's a really, really important problem in a huge amount of the pregnancy literature. And so I think part of what kind of pushed me in the direction of writing the book and part of the perspective I thought I could provide as a sort of a critical approach to some of the evidence rather than an, an uncritical approach. And, you know, sometimes in the medical literature, people tend to like count up the number of studies that say X and count up the number of studies that say not X and, you know, pick the decision, which is the bigger number of studies. But that sort of ignores that some of these studies might be better than others, then we might really want to think about the quality of the evidence. So I think those are sort of the two perspectives that I wanted to bring and that I think are often missing from this discourse. Hmm. That's so interesting. And it brings up so many questions for me, even just about data literacy crossed with this terrible kind of media inflammatory society uh, we live in. It's the worst, the <laughs> fake news. <laughs> and just how like headlines, they're designed to get us to click. So we'll say the most sensational thing in the headline, which might not actually explain the nuance. It's really challenging for me to operate in this environment. And the word truthiness comes to mind. How do you talk to your friends or your kids about being cautious or being analytical about the information they see and how to gauge whether or not something is true is so hard. And so one of the things people ask me a lot in the wake of, of this book is like, okay, so great. Like I want to be a sophisticated consumer of news and I want to like know which is a good study. So like, just tell me, how do you know it's a good study? And that's like really hard because I know it when I see it which is like the thing that the Supreme Court says about pornography. Like, well, I can tell if it's a good study because I've seen a lot of studies. And, you know, I think that there are some things that we're kind of always looking for. And that I think people should always be aware of when they're trying to read newspapers. So like, is this the first study about this thing? Is it big? Does it seem really sensational or implausible? Right. So one of the things I, I always caution people is like, when you're reading some new fact, you want to think about, does it seem likely this is true. Like before I read this, what would I have said was the likelihood that this was true? And that that should actually kind of be part of your of your analysis. You should think about like, what was my prior belief? It's like the Bayesian term for it. So, you know, at some point, right around when this book came out, there was this paper that came out that said like, swimming during pregnancy causes, I want to say it was like ADHD. It was like some like mental problem in the kids. You know, of course, there are many reasons why this was a terrible study. You know, it had like 14 people in it. You know, it had some other problems. But the first thing you want to see is like swimming during pregnancy causes ADHD. Like, is there any mechanism 
that seems plausible. If that were true, wouldn't there be like way more of this around? Just like, does this seem plausible? And I think we should often sort of start with like, does this seem plausible? Okay, now let me try to evaluate. Is this evidence any good at all? Right. And it's amazing to me how many headlines will even use the word causes yeah. when it's not even anything close to what the study is suggesting. No. And actually, the studies are often more like the sort of language in the, in the literature and like the academic literature is often very tempered relative to the way that it gets reported in the media. I mean, my favorite thing in the media is this like coffee studies, not about pregnancy, but like about longevity. It'd be like every week, coffee is either making you die sooner or die later. <laughs> it's definitely not neutral. It definitely kills you or doesn't kill you for sure. It's just we just haven't settled whether it's good or not good. <laughs> like, like coffee linked to early risk of death. Coffee linked to living forever. Like, well, it can't really be both of those things. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of coffee, I want to start diving in to caffeine and alcohol. And I'll tell you a little story for us to jump off on because I'm sure you'll appreciate this. I just went to the coffee shop this morning and I got a cappuccino because it is how I get through pregnancy. For people listening at the time of this recording, I'm pregnant, but most of you know that. And someone just at the milk station was like, oh, but decaf for you. And I looked (laughs) at them. (laughs) I was just like, I'm basically like a two-year-old at this point. I'm like, -uh." (laughs) nah. Like, no, of course I'm having caffeine. Do you know what this is like? It reminds me all the time of like, we're swimming in so many different myths and rules and fears about, oh, don't do all these things. You're a pregnant woman. Do not do anything. Like, be careful walking. Be careful exercising. Don't even smell alcohol. Coffee is certain to cause all these problems. So let's start with caffeine. Can you talk to me about what you discovered about caffeine and what the research showed? Yeah, sure. Often in these cases, we don't even tell people like why you should be worried about caffeine. Let's start with that. So the thing that people cite as a danger of caffeine is that it has been linked to miscarriage. So that is sort of what you are worried about, I guess. So first of all, sort of out of the gate, miscarriage is really, really uncommon after the first trimester of pregnancy. And in those situations, like after the first trimester, it nearly always happens because of some, you know, significant problem with the fetus or, you know, with the maternal physiology. So already, like, first thing, later trimesters, the ideas that coffee has risks is sort of doesn't have much support, even before you get into the data. But in the book, I look a lot at papers that try to look at the links between coffee and miscarriage. There's kind of two problems. The first one is that the kind of women who drink coffee are different from the kind of women who do not. So a typical study that looks at the relationship between coffee and miscarriage will take a bunch of women who are pregnant and look at whether they miscarry and then correlate that with how much coffee they report drinking during their pregnancy. And so that would actually be like a pretty good study. There are some worse study designs, but that would be sort of what you are hoping for. When you look at those studies, you do see that consuming a lot of coffee, say more than, you know, three or four, maybe more like eight cups a day is linked to a higher risk of miscarriage. Now, even sort of, again, taking a step back, small amounts of coffee in those studies are not linked to miscarriage. So the idea of like having a cup of coffee, two cups of coffee a day, there's just no evidence that that is bad, that that has any risks. So if your idea is that you shouldn't have any coffee, there's just nothing in the data that would support that. If your question is, could I have eight cups of coffee a day, then you want to like look a little more carefully at the data. And your one problem is that the kind of women who have coffee are different. And the ways in which they're different are also linked to miscarriage. So in particular, coffee consumption is higher among older women, and older women are also more likely to miscarry. So that's like the biggest confound. There's also differences across education group, and smokers are more likely to drink coffee and also more likely to miscarry. And we think that's probably the smoking not the coffee that is causing it. So there's a bunch of sort of those problems. And then there's actually, in the case of coffee, a sort of different problem, which is that being nauseous during pregnancy is also associated with a lower risk of miscarriage. I want to be clear here, even if you are not nauseous, it is still unlikely you will miscarry. Someone who are nauseous do miscarry. So it's not perfect. There is a correlation there that on, on average, women who are nauseous are less likely to miscarry. They're also less likely to drink a lot of coffee because one of the things that most people 
have trouble stomaching when they're feeling sick is caffeine. So that makes it very hard to learn about the effects of coffee on miscarriage, because even if you're asking about like, okay, seven, eight cups of coffee a day, do you really know, is it really the coffee or is it maybe differences across women and whether they're nauseous? And that's actually a really hard thing to adjust for in the data because it's hard to get really detailed information about nausea. So what I say in the book is, you know, if you want to have two cups of coffee or even, you know, four cups of coffee a day, there's really no evidence that that's the problem. If you want to go way beyond that, you know, there is some evidence that maybe that's linked to miscarriage, but even that it's hard to really conclude the links are real. And again, that's a very small number of women. So, you know, you're saying like you have a cappuccino a day. I'm sure you're not having eight cappuccinos every day. And in fact, even for not pregnant people, like that's a super large amount of coffee. It's like probably too much. That's probably too much coffee to have. Probably a lot of coffee for a human. Yeah, Yeah, that's a lot of coffee like for a person, um, (laughs) pregnant, not pregnant, just like that's just a lot of coffee. So I think that the evidence on coffee is pretty reassuring. Yeah. And so this starts to highlight one of the problems, which is we will then make blanket rules for pregnant women, all of them, lumping them into one group and saying, hey, all of you, you should just avoid coffee whatsoever because it might have this consequence over here when actually what you're saying is, well, we don't really know a tremendous amount. It looks like it's fine in the second and third trimester. Absolutely. It's linked to miscarriage, but so are all these other things that are correlated to miscarriage. And the population of people within, you know, pregnant women as a huge group, the the percentage of pregnant women that this actually matters to is very small. That's not a New York Times headline. (laughs) That's not, that's really hard to put into a headline, all that nuance. Yeah, it's just really challenging to help people see the nuance in the data and say, yeah, you know, there actually isn't really like a yes, no answer to this. Like, it is not the case that there's no evidence of problems with huge amounts of coffee. Like, we just can't really say for sure. It's also not the case that the evidence says, like, you definitely shouldn't have any coffee. It it doesn't say that either. It says sort of something in the middle. And one of the things you're going to have to think about is, like, how much do you like having a cup of coffee? And, you know, that's probably an important part of the decision, but one that is sort of missing when we think about blanket rules. Right. I love the way that you present this, too, is you can look at the information and everyone can make a different decision. But for me, it was really clear. Okay, I have a coffee a day. I have nothing to worry about. Right. Yeah. And the only time I would start to worry is if I had like a series of a lot of miscarriages or other things were going wrong, or I also had other risk factors. But given what I saw, I was like, give me that cappuccino. (laughs) This is how I'm going to wake up. So yeah, no, me too. I mean, for me as well, I like a coffee. And I think part of the other thing is sort of thinking about your own psychology almost. So I think for some women, they just want to make sure that they could say that I did everything right. Because you sort of know, like these behaviors are not going to impact what happens. If something happened, if I had a miscarriage, I wouldn't want to feel that it was my fault, even if I sort of knew that it wasn't. And so I think that's an important part of psychology. That's a very different thing than data. That's really, again, about sort of preferences, Mm. but thinking about how you're going to interact with this experience. And I think for some women, it's sort of like, I just want to know that like, I'm doing all the things that they say. And for some women, it's like, well, actually, I kind of want to know which of the things are important and which of the things are less important. Mm. That's such a good point too. And you said this, at the beginning, and it's also in your book, but you talk about how for you, like being able to research things and know more is reassuring to you. Like that's kind of the psychograph of I'm the same way in many ways. Like if I get stressed out, I want to know more information. But for other people, that doesn't help. That's just more stressful. And so weighing who you are in relation to how you approach problem solving decision making is also important. I love that. So let's talk about a tricky one. Let's talk about alcohol. This one, I know there's a lot more controversy around it. And the book got a lot of attention for kind of the guidelines and recommendations you put forth. Can you talk about what do you recommend in the book? And have you updated or changed any of your thinking along the way? So in the book, I go through a lot of studies of alcohol and pregnancy. So we should sort of say upfront that it is very clear that drinking a lot of alcohol in pregnancy is very dangerous. It can lead to pretty significant birth defects or moderate birth defects. It is very important to think about not binge drinking and not binge drinking before you're, you're pregnant. Even like one or two episodes of binge drinking early on in pregnancy can be really dangerous. So I say that in the book and that's true. And I think everybody acknowledges that. The question I then 
want to confront in the book, because I think it is the one that actually many women have is, you know, is it okay to have an occasional drink, an occasional glass of wine or a beer, or, you know, glass of champagne? Like, how bad is that? And is that bad? And the recommendations, at least in the US, are, you know, very clear, like, you should not have any alcohol ever. Part of what's a little funny about that recommendation is actually for a lot of women, when you then go and talk to your doctor, they'll be like, yeah, it's okay to have like a little bit, like you have a glass of wine here and there. It's like, fine. Both doctors I had with both pregnancies said that. I sort of wanted to understand like, well, okay, why? Like what makes you think that and the official recommendations say these other things? So what I did in the book was I went through and sort of looked carefully at all the different studies that look at the relationship between alcohol and birth defects, sort of focusing on studies where the women are drinking small amounts. And most of these studies tend to focus on the link between maternal drinking and outcomes like IQ measured in childhood or um, behavior problems is the other thing that's very common. And most of these studies are from Europe. And the reason for that is that sort of occasional drinking is much more common during pregnancy, rather. The selection problems that I sort of talked a little bit about with coffee are less problematic there. So in the U.S., Drinking during pregnancy is closely associated with differences in education and income and so on. But in Europe, that just isn't as true. There's more just like random variation and whether people drink. So when you look at these studies and they look at, you know, the relationship between IQ or behavior problems and drinking, and we look at categories of drinking, which are occasional, so say up to one drink a day in later trimesters, there just isn't any evidence in those studies that occasional drinking even up to a drink a day in the sort of second and third trimesters, there just isn't any evidence that that's linked with bad outcomes for kids later. There are actually a lot of studies of this. So at some point I sort of put it together and I think it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of women across many different studies, across many different countries using, in some cases, somewhat more sophisticated data techniques to try to get around various data problems. Really, the evidence is very reassuring that occasional drinking is not associated with bad outcomes. I just talked a little bit about possible links with miscarriage in the first trimester, which might suggest, you know, having less or, or abstaining during the first trimester. But that's what I say in the book. And I think it's important to say, again, that doesn't mean every woman is going to read this and say, okay, you're right, like, I should be drinking. If that's something that you would occasionally enjoy doing, I think the evidence is quite reassuring that, you know, having a glass of wine once a week or twice a week or three times a week has not been shown to have negative impacts on kids. And the sort of last point I try to make is that, you know, it's really very difficult, impossible to rule out effects from things like alcohol or even caffeine. You know, so when we estimate things in data, it comes with error. So it is possible that there are some extremely small negative effects of alcohol. That's, of course, true for anything, right? So it's possible there are some extremely small negative effects of broccoli or, you know, too much sunscreen or other things like that. And those are just not something we're ever going to see in data. Of course, they're not something you're probably ever going to notice in your kid either. They'll be certainly swamped by other variation. I think people need to think about that when they make these choices for themselves. But where the book comes down is it says, if you want to occasionally have a drink, the data suggests that that does not have negative impacts on your kid. The response to this, however, yeah. <laughs> there is some real... yeah inflammation, people who just were not okay with this as the guideline. And can you talk about what happened? Yeah. So I, I will say this is going to sound really naive. I found this response really surprising. When I say it like that sounds so dumb. I know a lot of doctors and I talked to a lot of doctors about the book when I wrote it. And I know a lot of doctors who occasionally have a glass of wine when they're pregnant and a lot of doctors who tell their patients that that's fine. I was sort of unprepared for the pushback. And actually, a lot of the pushback came, I think, not from doctors per se, but from sort of advocacy communities. So particularly people who are advocates for people who are affected by fetal alcohol syndrome, which your kid can have if you consume a large amount of alcohol during pregnancy. And so it is true that this is a disorder and this is something which we should be trying to eliminate. I think the ultimate sort of disagreement I had with a lot of people in this space is the question of what is the right approach to policy? It is an open question whether telling people not to drink at all is a productive way to avoid the kind of high risk drinking that leads to, you know, serious consequences for kids. And so I think for a lot of people, it's like, you know, we should just tell people not to do this at all, because if we tell them it's okay to have one drink, maybe they'll have seven drinks and that will be really bad. I think an alternative thing you might think is, you know, well, some people are going to have seven drinks, but 
those people are not going to be affected by these regulations, especially since a lot of that drinking is occurring before people know that they're pregnant at all. I think we had some disagreement about the right policy and sort of how these kind of rules should interact with policy. That was a source of a lot of the disagreements. And I also had some disagreements with like the official people who make the sort of ACOG rules about this, where, you know, I got frustrated and I felt that they were not really willing to engage with the data. That was a good lesson. I think this is so interesting because you can go through so much of the data and look through so many different populations and say, you know what, there isn't actually evidence that having a drink a day or fewer has any of these harmful effects that we're really scared about. But then, you know, translating that into how do we talk to people about alcohol? And if a doctor says, yeah, a drink a day is fine, like what's their behavior in relationship to that as a policy? Do people say, oh, if a drink a day is fine, then if I have three every now and then that's also fine, which actually isn't necessarily fine because it's like a behavior challenge and a, yeah. and a policy design. And I'm stumbling here. Obviously, I don't know the answer. The only thing I know is what I ended up deciding to do. That's kind of what some of the message of this book is. And for me, it was such a relief. I mean, we're very geeky in our house, but I know that a quarter cup is the exact amount that is acceptable. <laughs> like I know what a pour is. And once in a while, I'm like, you know what? You know what would be really nice is if we went to a bar and we got a beer and I got a couple sips of your beer. And yeah. even right now, my mouth is watering because it is like such a delicious thing. It's hot, hot summer right now. But then I also know inside my own body what the consequences are is that if I do drink, I actually get really bad leg cramps overnight and I don't sleep very well. And I have a headache from a freaking tablespoon of alcohol. I get a hangover. And so <laughs> so there's this like self-regulating mechanism in my yes. own body that's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That was a lot. And I'm like, use a tablespoon. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's complicated. For someone like me, it was a huge relief to not have all this shame and stigma and cultural noise about how terrible of a person I was around alcohol if I had a couple of sips now and then. But I know other people would do exactly what you said earlier, which is they want to know and be sure that they're not doing anything whatsoever and they will abstain entirely. And that's also a good decision also, for them. Totally fine. I agree. Also a very good decision. I think that it's like, yeah, I think this is really about sort of what like works for you. And I... The point I was trying to make when people reacted like this, which probably didn't come through quite right, is that I think there is a very important distinction between like, you know, what are the facts and what should the policy be? And like, I am not sure what is the right policy. You know, should the policy tell people that they can only have one? Like, you know, would that be a better policy than saying none? I just don't know. That actually feels like something we could test. I think some people would argue that, you know, if you tell people you can't have any, then if they have one, they're like, oh, well, I guess one is the same as 50. And so I might as well just have a lot. And if you tell them, no, actually, one is not the same as, you know, 50, that would be helpful. I think people could disagree with that. That's, of course, totally different from the question of, you know, what does the data say? And, you know, if people want to know what the data says, should we tell them? And I really think the answer is yes. I mean, that's something where I really think that it's not appropriate to infantilize people and infantilize women and say, well, I'm not going to tell you what the truth is. I'm just going to tell you like what I've decided is the decision that you're going to make. I don't think well, that's okay. That's part of the underlying thing. I think you mentioned this in the book, but correct me if I'm wrong. When a doctor says, oh, no, you can't have anything to drink whatsoever. And then in their mind, it's like, if I tell you to have one drink, you can't control yourself. It's a little bit patronizing to be like, mm, mm -hmm. I don't trust you to be able to actually like listen or follow advice or be diligent. I just have to tell you because you can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's just like, not necessary. Okay. So I have one more question. You mentioned it in the opening story of the book, and you also, I think, wrote about it for 538. Can you talk about television and screen time for kids? Sure. I talked some about that in the new book, but I written about it before. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of people wonder about these rules on screen time for kids and whether it's okay for your kid to watch a little bit of TV. And the American Academy of Pediatrics is a little schizophrenic on this actually so for a while they were saying oh and like no tv up to two and then for a while they were saying you know it was only 18 months and i don't i don't know where they are now so the concern is you know if your kid watches too much tv they will i guess be poorly behaved and you know not do as well in school and you know again this data the data that people base this on is really not very good because what they're doing is they're looking at the relationship between you know outcomes for kids and the amount of TV kids watch. Uh, a kid who watches four hours of TV 
versus kid who watches a half an hour of TV a week, there are a lot of other differences probably in the lives of those children and in the family circumstances of those children and uh, so on. So I think that it is really hard to look at that and be like, oh, okay, yes, for sure TV is bad because it's hard to know that you've, you've adjusted for all of the differences. And I think unfortunately in the case of television, most of the evidence we have is really not very good. So in that 538 piece, I think I talk about what I think is some of the best evidence, which actually comes from my husband, you know, who was also an economist. And at some point he wrote a paper where he looked at some very old data from sort of when TV was first introduced and tried to figure out the answer to this question by comparing kids who got TV early, like because their city got access to television earlier versus kids who got TV later. And they basically don't see any differences, which suggests that, you know, at least at that time, having access to TV didn't have any long-term effects. But what I think is frustrating for parents now is like, okay, fine. So that's like about TV in the 1950s. Like, what about TV in 2018? And, you know, what about iPad games? And, you know, my kid's on the phone all the time. Like, is that bad for them? And, you know, how am I supposed to navigate this? And I think, unfortunately, we just don't have much evidence on any of that. So what do you do personally when you don't have enough information about something? How do you make decisions? I think the answer is, like, basically instinct. And so I think in this case, you know, I have the instinct that, you know, spending a lot of time watching TV is not good for at least for my kids. And I think, again, this is sort of part of your kind of what your kids are like. So I find, you know, when my kids watch TV, which they do occasionally, you know, it's hard to pull them away from it. Like they get really like into it. <laughs> and then they're like, my daughter used to get like so upset when she had to stop watching TV for dinner. And so in some sense, you sort of realize, okay, like this is sort of affecting them. And so we limit that a lot. We do let them play stuff on the, on the iPad. And I guess the answer is like, I kind of just try to go with, what my instincts say are right, because there just isn't any data. And so that's sort of all I have. So rather than saying, well, I'm going to go with what this crappy data says, I'd rather just say, okay, this is sort of my instinct based on knowledge about the world, about like, what's the right thing to do. And I'd rather do that. Right, right. And then like micro data, or that might not be it the right use of that term, but the day-to-day of like, you're a crabby person when you watch more TV, and I would prefer to be around somebody that's not quite so crabby. How have you changed by becoming a parent? Oh my goodness. Like a a lot. I think I got a lot more efficient at my job. I don't work as many hours, but I think that the hours that I work are more efficient. I find parenting to be very all consuming in some way. Like I spend a a lot of my time thinking about my kids and, you know, when things happen that are good, I, that makes me happy. And when things are not good, it's very hard for me to, to like focus on other stuff. And so I think it sort of affected my, my like day-to-day psychology a lot more than I had anticipated. Although I, I did think before I had kids, like, well, you know, what if I turn out to be like a totally different person? you know, like lose myself. And I think I don't feel like that's happened. So I feel like ultimately, you know, kind of the same that I that I was before, except that I spent all my time thinking about like, what kind of clothes my children need. (laughs) I want to ask you about this upcoming book, you finished writing your second book, right? Yes, I have. Can you tell us what it's about? Like, what are the next topics that you've researched? Yeah, so it's sort of the sequel to the pregnancy book. So it's, you know, how to use data in, I would say, zero to three. So it covers a lot of stuff in like the first year. So the sort of big, like hot button early parenting topics like breastfeeding, vaccination, things about sleep. Should your kids sleep in your bed? Should you let them cry? And then a bunch of stuff about kind of later in the toddler years. So some things about potty training, about discipline about education. I talk about the evidence on, you know, working moms versus stay-at-home moms and, you know, nannies versus daycare if you don't stay home. I try to cover a lot of sort of those kind of big decisions. And there's also a bunch of stuff in the book on like data on early life stuff. So I think one of the things I, I remember being sort of occupying a lot of my time when my kids were little was a sort of, is this like normal? Is my kid normal? Are they behind? And my kids walked really late. And I remember being like, okay, like it's so late that like they'll never do sports, you know, or is there just like a big range of this? And so I actually have a bunch of chapters on, you know, sort of physical stuff and, and also language development 
discussing just sort of what's the range of normal? How do you figure out where a kid is in that range? If that's interesting, or why would we be concerned about this? And is it linked to any later outcomes? And so just trying to give people more data to think about. Hmm. Did you end up coming up with a title? I mean, I'm sure you did. But I remember there was this Twitter question you posted about what the title of the book should be. What yes. is the title? I can't tell you. Uh, we do oh, have a okay. title. <laughs> and I think, I think we're going to like say what it is in like a few weeks, but I haven't actually said it anywhere. So, but yes, there okay. is a title. There oh, is a title. Awesome. And I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I was looking everywhere and I said, either I'm a bad researcher, but I have to no. ask her. <laughs> okay, it's not no, out. Yeah, it's not out, but it's really great. <laughs> okay, that's excellent. My husband got into a big work debate at his company about what the title should be. So I'll be really curious. Oh, to good. See. All right. We'll see. But actually, so I will say my husband did come up with the title. It is a title that he wanted for the first book. And so he's been really pitching it for like years. He's been pitching this title. So he's pretty funny. happy. It's like a kid's name. You're like, fine, we'll name our third kid. Right, that. exactly. It's like, all right, all right, fine. You get Batman, you know, <laughs> name him Batman. That's really funny. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I want to read it right away. It'll be out soon enough, especially with relation to when we're airing this episode. So the last question I have is a big meaty one again. And it's about how you think about people and changing their ideas over time. Because something I have really admired from afar in watching the way you work is you'll put out information. And I think the missing women hypothesis isn't a good example of this. But you put out a paper or put out information or put out a thesis and then continue to study and continue to research and look and then make corrections or make changes over time. And to me, that's like one of the markers of humanity's wisdom is being able to evolve our thinking. And yet there's such a clasping or a grasping for certainty. A, can you tell a little bit of the missing women hypothesis story? And then can you talk about, and I can ask this question again because it's so big, but can you talk about why it, it's so important to keep updating our thinking? So I will tell you first about the missing women. So there's this sort of ongoing puzzle in demography where there's a lot more boys than girls in certain areas of the world. And this is something which is typically associated with sort of son preference and the idea that parents are either selectively terminating pregnancies or actually like, you know, mistreating their daughters and they die sooner and then there are more boys. So this is a longstanding theory. And at some point in graduate school, I got an idea based on a book that I had read that some of this problem, not all of it, but that some of it, particularly in China, might actually be a result of disease burden of a particular disease, which some evidence had suggested caused moms to have more boy children. The disease is called hepatitis B. And the idea was that these other researchers had sort of seen that there was like more boy children born to moms who had this disease than to moms who did not. And this disease is very prevalent in China. And so sort of putting that together with a bunch of other, what I thought at the time was really good evidence. I wrote a paper that said that, you know, actually some of this problem, particularly in China, a reasonably large share was actually maybe not due to selective mistreatment, but instead to this virus. So the paper got a lot of attention and a lot of criticism and was published pretty well. And like people were very interested in it and it, it made me sort of very famous within economics. And then in a series of events that I hate reliving, it basically turned out it was not right. And so the simplest way to say it is like somebody got some better data that someone collected, which suggested that it was not right. At that point, there was still actually some chance that it was right. And I was sort of faced with, I think, a choice to either just say, well, I think I'm right because it could be this other thing that's going on. And like, I'm going to sort of stick to that. And I'm just going to say that and I'm going to continue to say that I'm not going to admit that I'm wrong. I'm just going to keep saying that I think I could be right, which I was true. I thought I could be right. Or I can actually figure out if I am right. And so I went with option two. I went to China and I collected a bunch of different data, new data on this link, data that was better than the data I had had in the paper and that was better than the other data that these other people had. And I collected all this data and I got all of these results. I remember I was at some, to tell you what academics are like, I was at a ski conference. Okay. I was at a conference where what you do is like you go to some <laughs> seminars in the morning and then like most of the day you ski. That was like the activity. Somebody's like, okay, here's the data. And they sent me the data in my hotel room. And the, the analysis for this, the sort of thing I needed to look at was like super, super simple. Like there wasn't any coding. It was either like, this is just true or not. And I remember just running it. 
And it just wasn't true. I wasn't right. I mean, it wasn't that I, what I had written before was wrong. It was just like this fact wasn't true. And that was it. Just wasn't true. And I was like, okay, it's just not true. And I remember telling one of my colleagues on the ski lift the next day, somebody who was at the conference, but also wasn't like somebody I worked with. I was just like, yeah, this thing is not, is not true. And it was, of course, like super, super embarrassing, super embarrassing because I was, you know, I was this junior researcher and this was by far the most famous thing that I had written and it was just not correct. But, you know, I wrote something that said, you know, look, this wasn't right. And, and, you know, some people said, you know, I knew it wasn't right. You're a liar. You know, but some people were like, oh, actually, I think a lot of people were like, you know, actually, that's, that's really good that, you know, you, you did this and you found out what was true. And so when I look back on that, it was obviously a very formative experience on a bunch of dimensions. It was also really, really hard. I can sort of see linking to the other part of your comment that, you know, once you have said something and sort of put yourself out and said that you think something is true and put your reputation out, it is very hard to then go back and say that you're wrong, even if you think that you didn't really do anything wrong at the time. I'm sympathetic to the feeling of, I, I don't want to do that. But of course, I think if we don't do that, then your science does not move forward. I think it's so hard to know. There's so much that science doesn't know, like so much that research can't figure out. I think so much of the time we set out to solve a research puzzle and we just don't get information from it. It's like, well, I really wanted to study this and don't know. Still right. don't know. <laughs> like, still and we still sure. don't know. <laughs> yeah. Still not sure. Um, Oh, Emily, it's been so great to have you on the show. I could ask you so many more <laughs> questions, but I will tell people to read your book instead. Where can they find you on the internet the most? And where can they find your books? So you can find my books, hopefully at bookstores, but for sure on Amazon. And you can find me at my Brown website if you want to read my papers, which I think are pretty accessible. They have a lot of pictures. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm Prof. Emily Oster. Yeah, you're pretty funny on Twitter. There, I wanted to ask Thank you some you. Twitter questions. I'll let the listeners go find you on Twitter because yeah, I love Twitter. My husband doesn't accounts. follow me on Twitter, but a lot of other economists are telling him that, that I'm funny. And he's, he's like, you know, I don't think you're that funny. <laughs> <laughs> he, was like, he was like, this person shared this tweet with me and I, they thought it was funny. I didn't think it was funny. <laughs> like, okay, thanks. So thanks funny. so much for your that, support. <laughs> you're like, well, I'm glad we have an in person relationship then. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm not sure he thinks I'm funny in person either. But, uh. <laughs> You know what? Oh, so it is. Thank you again. For Thank you so us. much. 